Good evening. I'll be preaching from the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. A short text, but an important and a powerful one. This is what Paul writes in Galatians, chapter 2, starting in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless his word. Heavenly Father, we pray for spiritual insight. We pray, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit would come and work in us as he has worked in Christians for thousands of years to show us your word and to illuminate it before us. May we see our beloved Savior and the glory of his gospel here tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Truth is something that has to be believed as well as acted upon. Something that is believed, but also something that changes the way that we live. And Paul is about to teach one of the greatest truths any human could ever hear. It's the truth of justification by faith alone, that bedrock doctrine of the Christian gospel that is foundational to all that we believe and hold dear as Christians. And in this text, he's not yet expounding it. He's not yet explaining the doctrine of justification, but he's gearing up to go there very soon. And here he's showing how important that doctrine is. It has to be believed sincerely, but also defended fiercely. As I said, it has to be a doctrine that changes who we are, how we live, and how we relate to one another. That's really what this text is about. It's, it's about the danger of believing justification, but not acting upon it, of being hypocrites when it comes to this vital doctrine. Here's how I plan to tackle the text tonight. It's a little unusual. I'm just going to describe the story first briefly and then come back at the end with a couple of points of application. Uh, You can call them lessons that we learn from the story. But first, let's just ask ourselves what happened here in the city of Antioch. Well, I think if you're familiar with this text or as you learned while I was reading it, it's really not a very fun scene to read about. It would have been very uncomfortable, to say the least, if you were there present at this time. It's a church meal. All of the church has been gathered. Everyone is there. It seems to be going pleasantly enough. And then you notice that an argument breaks out. And then that argument gets a little bit louder. And you turn to look at what's happening, and what do you see? You see the Apostle Paul in Peter's face, loudly criticizing him. There's an argument 
between the two apostles that are there at the church meal. And it's a shocking scene. It's an upsetting scene. This is uh, most likely any mother's worst nightmare for a a Thanksgiving dinner, to see a, a nice meal ruined by fierce argumentation. And so we have to ask ourselves, how in the world did it ever come to this? How in the world did it ever come to a place where two of the apostles are opposing one another to each other's faces? Well, let me give a little bit of context. Paul tells us that this happened in the city of Antioch, Antioch in Syria. It's one of the biggest cities in the Roman Empire at this time. I've heard some say that it's, it's the third largest city in the empire. And it's one of the cities that Paul, as well as Barnabas, ministered to very early on in the spread of the gospel. And it was also a big center for Christianity. If you were to think of towns at this time that really took off with the gospel, this is one of them. In fact, if you look at Acts 11, it tells us that in Antioch, this was the first place that Christians were called Christians. That's where the name came from. Antioch was also an ethnically and culturally mixed city. As you can imagine, it's a, it's a big uh, uh, urban environment. And there were Jews as well as Gentiles who had become Christians and were now worshiping and fellowshipping together. So Antioch would have been a great place to see Christian unity worked out from the very beginning, to see the principle that Paul had given to the church that he says in Ephesians 2.14, talking of Christ, he said this, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Two peoples made into one. Paul is reminding us that the Gentiles had been justified by faith alone, just as the Jewish Christians had been. And now there was no longer any distinction between Jew and Gentile. It it wasn't that God took the Gentiles and he made them into Jewish people, but rather he took believers of Jews and believers who were Gentiles and he made them together new creations in Christ Jesus. And Paul even tells us this in, in a remarkable fashion a little while later in Galatians chapter 3. There in verse 28, he would say, There is neither Jew nor Greek, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And all that to say, if you wanted to see that expressed in a beautiful way, you would go to Antioch. But we're told in this text that that unity that was expressed there in Antioch was eventually threatened by none other than the apostle Peter. We see this in verse 11. Paul says, but when Cephas came, by the way, Cephas is Peter. Cephas came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He uses this word here, condemned. Peter was condemned. That is to say he was guilty of acting according to knowledge. That's literally what that word means, Uh, acting according to what you know. In other words, Peter was doing something that he knew himself was not right before God. And he goes on in verse 12, he says, For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came back, he drew back and separated himself, fearing 
the circumcision party. So at first, things are going well. Peter is eating with the, the, the Gentile believers in Antioch. He's fellowshipping with them. He's worshiping with them. He's acknowledging them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we should recognize that that is, in fact, a big deal. It's a lesson Peter himself has had to learn in the past, that, that as a Jewish man, he had to put off cleanliness laws, putting up, going and fellowshipping with the, the Gentiles there would have meant having to engage with people who ate unclean food, who were themselves ritually impure. But as I said, Peter has already learned that that was okay. If you look at the book of Acts, chapter 10, you see a really great story there. That was a, a foundational moment for Peter. And in this story, Peter had the privilege of bringing the gospel to a man named Cornelius and his family. But Cornelius was a Gentile. And there Peter had seen for himself how the Gentiles could be saved by faith and justified and to become one with all believers. And Peter himself had even said these words in Acts 28. He says to Cornelius, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. In other words, this is something that Peter knows very well. He's learned this truth before. He knows that Gentile Christians are now no longer any different from Jewish Christians. And now in Antioch, he is showing the fruit of that. He is eating with the Gentiles, fellowshipping with them. But only for a time, sadly. We're told that these men from James came. And then Peter decided to change his actions. Well, who are these men from James? Uh, a couple of things we can say about them. Uh, first, we shouldn't equate these men from James, this circumcision party, with the same people that Paul is opposing in his letter to the Galatians. Recall that in the Galatian church, there were Judaizers who were false teachers that had come into the church. But here, Paul, I think, is talking about a different group. I know that the names can be tricky. You have a circumcision party here in this text, and Paul is dealing with Judaizers in the book of Galatians. But even though they aren't exactly the same, they are similar in some ways. They both have Judaizing tendencies. That is to say, they are Jewish Christians who are associated with James and who are known for promoting circumcision. And they are called the circumcision party. I think the basic way to divide these two groups, the circumcision party from James and the Judaizers in Galatia, is like this. The Judaizers were, in essence, saying, you could not be a Christian if you were not circumcised. You couldn't be a Christian if you were not circumcised. The men from James, or the circumcision party, said this, you could be a Christian, but just you weren't as pure as those who did. In essence, this group, the circumcision party, saw two class of Christians, those who were circumcised and those who were not. And when these men came, Peter publicly separated from the Gentile Christians. 
And we're told in the text that he switched out of fear of this group, out of a, of a pressure to conform to this group. And to us, this may not seem like a very big deal. What's the big deal in getting up from one table and moving up to a different table? But Paul makes a big deal about it, and we need to see that. Paul knows that this division is a functional denial of justification by faith alone, that, that Peter's actions, whether he intended to or not, it was a denial of the joint union that Gentiles and Jews had by their faith in Christ. And it denied by his action the truth that those believers were all justified in the same way. Paul even says in 2.14, uh, quite startlingly, he says that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That is to say that Peter and Barnabas, their action did not match their belief. Paul says in verse 13, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. In other words, Peter's actions as a leader, as an apostle, had a, a downstream effect that the other Jewish Christians saw Peter doing this and followed suit. And, and quite troublingly, even Barnabas, who's a, a leader in the church of Antioch, who would probably be known as the pastor of the church in Antioch, even Barnabas separated himself. And Paul's rebuke to Peter is really pointed. He says in verse 14, that I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, Peter, just a moment ago, you were living like a Gentile. You were eating with them. You were foregoing the, the cleanliness laws that Jews have lived by. You were fellowshipping with them. You were in every way living like a Gentile. But only now, when the pressure came, you switched back. And whether you intended to or not, Paul is saying to Peter, you are in essence forcing the Gentile Christians to be like you, forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews. Well, as I said, I just wanted to set out the story first, uh, and that's what I've done. And now I want to ask, what are some lessons that we can take from this? How can we apply this story to ourselves? And really, all of my lessons start in the same way. Uh, if we believe this doctrine, that is justification by faith alone, then what? Well, here's the first one. If we believe this doctrine of justification by faith alone, then we should defend it. This is a, a scene that makes people uncomfortable because many people are uncomfortable with the idea of conflict, especially conflict between apostles, nonetheless. Um, it's interesting, as I was studying this text, I, I found out that many in the early church actually went so far as to say that this could never have been the Apostle Peter. This was just some other Peter, right? Because the idea that Paul and Peter would be fighting was so troubling to so many that it just must have been a different Peter altogether. But, but really, that's not the case at all. This is the Apostle Paul. It is the Apostle Peter. And that makes us uncomfortable. However, we need to remember that not all conflict is bad. Sometimes conflict and defending the truth is necessary. Sometimes there are truths that are so vital that we must, 
insist upon them, even if it will make some uncomfortable. And justification by faith alone is one of those truths. It is at the the very heart of the gospel. It's a summary of the, the powerful love of God to provide for his people a righteousness by faith alone through Jesus Christ. This is a doctrine Paul shows us that is worth protecting and worth defending. Just think to yourself about why the Protestant Reformation was so important. Why do we read so much history about the Protestant reformers? And I think it was such an important time, not just because they declared justification by faith alone, but because they were willing to defend justification by by faith alone. They actually stood their ground. They did not budge an inch on that doctrine. They knew how important it was. It really is a doctrine worth defending. But also notice how Paul defends that doctrine. He addresses the problem head on, doesn't he? That's what really makes some uncomfortable about this text is how uh, much he takes it head on, literally. He goes straight to the person committing the sin. He goes right to the apostle Peter. In other words, he doesn't go to everyone else in the church first. He doesn't go spread the word about what Peter is doing. Hey, did you hear what Peter, can you believe what Peter did, right? Nothing like this. He goes right to Peter himself. And because Peter's sin was done in such a public way, and and really because Peter was an apostle and he was influential, Paul opposes him in a public way as well, lest anybody who saw Peter's actions be confused and then take a similar course of action. But one other thing to notice about Paul's defense is this. It wasn't overly harsh, and we we need to see that in this text. He was certainly firm, but he was not harsh with Peter. He was tough with him, but he wasn't arrogant or belittling to him. And we can even say it like this. After this conflict is over, the relationship still stood between the two of them. I have uh, Pastor King to thank for pointing me to 2 Peter 3.15, where he encouraged me to make this point so you can thank him later, uh, that Peter himself, years later, would say in 2 Peter 3.15, uh, where he would call Paul a beloved brother Paul. Whatever happened here, As tough as it might have been in the moment, it did not ruin the relationship. Paul was not overly harsh in defending this doctrine. A second lesson we can learn. If we believe this doctrine, then we cannot be hypocrites about this doctrine. That's what Paul accuses Peter and Barnabas and all of the Jews of being. He calls them hypocrites. And this word comes from uh, really the theater world, uh, if you can believe it. It described an actor somebody who was pretending, somebody who was putting on a show, somebody who was putting on pretenses, make-believe, you might say. In other words, he's accusing Peter and these others of believing justification, but putting on a show as if they did not really believe it. And so we always need to remember that we cannot do the same thing. We cannot be hypocrites when it comes to God's justifying love toward us. But we need to remember how he deals with us as his people. God deals with you and I on the basis of unmerited favor, grace, and forgiveness. Therefore, we need to do the same to those in the church. 
Therefore, we need to treat others in this same way as we have been treated. Paul teaches the exact same thing. He says in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We can't be hypocrites about our justification by faith alone. And then a third lesson. If we believe this doctrine, we need to be known for it. You, you see this point made negatively in the text as uh, James and his men, this circumcision party, if you were to ask, what are they known for? Yes, they're Christians, but what are they really known for? Well, circumcision. They're even called the circumcision party, the circumcision gang. In fact, what Paul literally says in the text is he says, when the circumcised showed up, and everybody knows what he's talking about. Everybody knows that Paul is talking about the people who never stop talking about circumcision, the people who always boast about their circumcision, the people who only fellowshiped with other circumcised Christians. In other words, they were known for that, not for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is something that we can't fall into as believers in Jesus Christ. We can never elevate a doctrine to a place that it really does not belong so that that one doctrine becomes the very identity that we hold. No, rather we are to be known primarily for our devotion to Jesus Christ, our zeal for the word of God, and our passion for the gospel. And justification by faith alone is simply the gospel. And then finally, one last lesson. If we believe this doctrine, then we should fight the temptation to divide in the church. A few years ago, I took a class at RTS uh, taught by our beloved pastor, Greco, on polity. And uh, one of the texts that he assigned for that class was a very short essay written by C.S. Lewis called The Inner Ring. I'd never heard of it, but I found it fascinating. And in this essay that C.S. Lewis wrote called The Inner Ring, he, he posited this theory, and I think he's right. He said that in every place or in every structure, every group uh, in all of human society, there always exists unofficial groups within the group, uh, some sort of group that exists inside of the official group. In other words, divisions that exist that you can sort of smell out the longer you're a part of that group of who's sort of in this inner ring or not. And he has some really interesting words about the inner ring. He says this. He says, the only certain rule is that the insiders call it by different names. From inside, it may be called you and Tony and me. When it is very secure and comparatively stable in membership, it calls itself we. When it has expanded to meet a particular emergency, it calls itself all of the sensible people at this place. From outside, if you have despaired of getting into it, you call it that gang, or they, or so-and-so in his set, or the caucus, or the inner ring. And then he finishes by saying this, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside it. So I don't say this because I'm trying to raise alarms or scare anybody. I'm I'm not aware of any secret inner rings lurking within the shadows uh, here at Christ Church. Uh, if there are any, uh, I haven't been invited. Um, <laughs> but simply that his point is that 
as humans, and, and sadly, even as Christians, we have this propensity to divide everywhere, including in the church itself. And in the church, this can take so many different kinds of forms. From a more serious form, it could be uh, an, a debate between who are the really committed Christians, who are the purer ones, the ones who really know what's going on, and the ones who really don't. It could be even very silly things like uh, who's in favor of painting the nursery yellow or painting it pink. And yes, I, I have heard of a church embroiled in turmoil over that very question. It can be silly things. It can be serious things. It doesn't really matter as long as it divides God's people or hurts the, the unity and fellowship of the church, it's a problem. The desire to be in, whatever in is, is a really powerful motivating, uh, motivating factor. It can cause us to do things that we know are wrong, and at worst, it can cause us to act out of accord with the gospel itself. That's really what we see with the Apostle Peter here. He wanted to be in with the circumcision party, and because of that desire, he abandoned his brothers and his sisters. He walked out of line, out of accord with the gospel of Jesus Christ, out of this desire. It's a dangerous one, and it's one that if we, as Christians, know this truth of justification by faith alone, we must avoid it at all costs. Well, let me just bring this to a close. Paul here is beginning to teach us the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Uh, the heavy lifting will start uh, in verse 15 through 21. But for now, Paul wants us to know that this is a doctrine we must not only believe, but we must act on. In other words, we must know what Christ has done for us, and it must change our lives radically. Let's go ahead and pray.